Hello. From the Moscone Center in San Francisco, California, this is the 2017 ASPN Annual Meeting Podcast, a discussion of the latest scientific and clinical advances presented at this year's annual meeting. My name is Ibrahim Shatat, Chair of the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology Communications Committee. I'll be your host, and with me, I have a wonderful panel to discuss today's meeting highlights. This is Larry Greenbaum, ASPN President, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the ASPN podcast from day two of the 2017 meeting. We're going to be hearing uh, from a number of people. We're going to summarize some of the highlights of the exciting sessions that occurred today. Good evening. Um, I am Farzana Parwad. I am a pediatric nephrologist at UCSF, and uh, I had the um, honor of chairing one of the sessions today. It was a very exciting um, session. Um, it was an invited science symposium titled FGF23, New Insights, Therapies, and Clinical Approaches. We had a panel of four speakers, and we started with uh, a discussion on physiology of vitamin D and phosphate transport and its regulation by FGF23. And this was uh, given by Dr. Jyotsna Gatnani, um, speaker from UT Southwestern Dallas. Uh, this talk was then followed by um, findings from the CKID study, which is a cohort of children with chronic kidney disease, and Dr. Portale described some of the new findings in relation to FGF23. And what we now know is that FGF23 is a risk factor for chronic kidney disease in children, and it also in increases the risk of CKD progression and left ventricular hypertrophy. Um, following that uh, talk, we had um, a session on X-linked hypophosphatemic rickets. This talk was given by Dr. Thomas Carpenter from Yale University and he presented some very exciting novel data using anti-FGF23 antibody in X-linked hypophosphatemia. The clinical trials are underway in the United States and internationally in both adult and pediatric patients, and we expect um, FDA approval hopefully in the next one to two years, and we will have therapy for the first time after 30 years in this very rare disease. And we briefly also talked about what are the implications of using this anti-FGF23 antibodies in other disorders and the potential for CKD patients. Um, we then ended the session with a practical discussion on using FGF23 assay in our pediatric population, specifically in CKD, and this talk was given by Dr. Isidro Saluski from UCLA, and he described the commercial assays that are available to measure both intact and uh, C-terminal forms of FGF23 and what are the clinical indications for measuring them. At this time, uh, we don't have clear guidelines as to which population they will be useful in terms of guiding management, but we expect that to change very soon. Perhaps in the next two to five years, we will have better guidelines on using FGF23 like PTH in the management of bone and mineral disorders in CKD. So 
Laurel Willig, and I was um, part of the second session where we talked a lot about the development of, um, uh, well, the development of the kidney and how that has implications for disease both in the short term and um, long term. Um, so we started with a session on nephron development, and I think the biggest thing um, there that I took home from that is we are learning more about the regulation, and as we learn more, I think it gets more complicated. <laughs> um, and also that we still have a little bit of a way to go to really have some sort of clinical ability to estimate nephron mass um, and number and how that might play into kind of long-term renal development. Um, we then went on to talk about uh, neonatal hypertension um, and we talked a lot about what Dr. Kent talked a lot about um, the our lack of ability to measure accurately blood pressure as being kind of the first challenge and um, uh, kind of determining what the best approach to neonatal hypertension is and then um, uh, presented some very nice data about sort of normative values for um, both full-term infants um, and preterm infants and highlighted the fact that uh, really it's dependent on kind of post-gestational age in those preterm infants and that maybe we are doing not as good of a job um, figuring out what a normal blood pressure should be for preterm infants. Um, she did talk a little bit also about um, sort of maternal risk factors or maternal medication exposures and how they may have an implication for the development of neonatal hypertension. And I think the bottom line is that the jury is still out, but there is some um, indications that those medications um, that, that um, moms are exposed to really may play a role in the, that disease. And then finally, um, she talked about our kind of lack of data on how, um, who we should treat for hypertension and with what medications, but um, did give some examples of some potential uh, treatment options. Um, and then I talked briefly about uh, the genetic um, burden of um, neonatal kidney disease. Um, mine was mostly meant to be a clinical talk with uh, just a little bit about how this is still a growing field and um, where are our where is the missing um, genetic uh, information to help explain renal development? Um, and I think there's still a lot to be learned is the bottom line and that we are slowly, slowly knocking off the genes that are out there that cause renal disease, but then we have a whole nother um, area to focus in on, on the regulatory mechanisms and how the environment plays into those regulatory mechanisms. And then we finally finished off with um, Dr. Ashkenazi talking about um, AKI and its long-term implications for chronic kidney disease. And while I think probably most of the nephrologists in the room were not surprised about the increased mortality and morbidity that those patients have, I think our, some of our neonatology colleagues maybe were a little bit um, taken aback by that, uh, all the data that they've had from the AWAKEN study and some of the pre the previous studies on that. Um, and I think that really stimulated some increased interest from our neonatology colleagues on 
um, both identifying um, AKI and then potentially treatment mitigation. And then I think one of the exciting things you talked about a little bit at the end was um, uh, kind of a more personalized dialysis machine for neonates and how that really helps in our ability to treat these um, babies who have significant um, AKI from whatever, for whatever reason. And so I think that was also was a really exciting part of his talk. I think one thing that um, I ha was left wondering about, well, a couple of things were, what can we do to even to prevent AKI, not just treat it after, not just recognize it after it happens, but actually work on some preventative measures? Because I think a lot of the neonatologists, they didn't even know that it causes so many problems. They're probably not super aware of their um, the causes or or try to mitigate those causes as much as they can so I actually wanted to mention I think in the first talk in your session it there was uh, some discussion about how you could measure nephron mass with different imaging and maybe that's coming down the pipeline and one of the questions was we know it's one million nephrons is probably what we now consider normal but perhaps there's a range and 0.5 to you know, half a million to one million might be like a person with a height of 5.4 versus a 6.2, and it's all within the normal range. So that was yeah, a very I thought that was really great uh -huh. comparison. And we may be seeing you know future studies looking at nephron mass in these babies and children to kind of see if that will correlate with some diseases. So I yeah. thought that was pretty cool. I also thought it brought up the point that maybe we need to have a workshop or discussion that highlights these new imaging technologies because there was also a talk yesterday where they were using some really cool MRI spectroscopy and just like the capabilities that are out there for imaging. I think if you work in the, mostly in the clinical world, you have no idea. <laughs> well, there is an imaging uh, session tomorrow. Oh good, um, perfect. So touch upon that. Uh, good evening from San Francisco. I'm Stephanie Jernigan from uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University, and I'm the medical director of our dialysis unit there. And I sort of spent the day uh, in the realm of dialysis. So I, it was really interesting that I uh, was part of the uh, one to three session this afternoon delivering hemodialysis to children in 2017. But just prior to going to that session, um, went to the meeting for our public policy committee uh, of the ASPN, um, which is uh, very involved with uh, dialysis and sort of liaison, uh, as a liaison to CMS, and really trying to be a voice at the table. There are a lot of people doing a lot of good work, um, trying to make sure that uh, the pediatric voice is heard as we talk about pediatric hemodialysis with CMS and the metrics that are used to uh, sort of uh, evaluate how well we are, are dialyzing um, people, particularly children, um, as, as we sometimes, um, it's not quite as well defined as it is in the adult world. So moving on right after that um, meeting, uh, we had an after, uh, afternoon session on uh, delivering hemodialysis to children. The first uh, talk was uh, given by Olivera Calaris, and, and she talked about uh, hemodialysis kinetic modeling, and so talked through how we've gotten to where we are today with our uh, uh, KT over V and kinetic modeling and, and adequacy of uh, dialysis, but I think we all realize that there's uh, room for further um, development 
uh, in that field. Uh, and also reminded us, I thought of very appropriately, that KT over V and uh, kinetic modeling is just one way of looking at adequacy of dialysis, that it's very important to look at uh, you know, the total picture of the patients that we uh, take care of with respect to growth and development and, and nutrition and, and uh, those types of things. So uh, a lovely talk. Moved on from that to, I think, a very timely talk from Rudy Valentini, who talked about hemodialysis uh, vascular access. He's been very involved in this um, uh, for many years, trying to set uh, sort of uh, guidelines uh, with respect to uh, expectations for, for vascular access and, and really reminded us that we probably uh, need to do uh, better and be more proactive with um, uh, getting our uh, dialysis patients to uh, grafts and fistulas. Uh, that uh, there's certainly some challenges there with respect to having surgical expertise in our universities to, to do this, but really, um, uh, you know, uh, sent the message home that we really need to uh, be more proactive because we're really leaving children um, with no access uh, for for the rest of you know their lives, and that we we know that um, uh, transplants are are not a cure, and they don't last forever, and so we need to even think about uh, our children uh, as adults uh, and and their vascular uh, access going forward. Uh, next was a, a really terrific talk by Rulan Perek uh, from Sick Children's, and she. Uh, it was just very timely after coming from the public policy committee and talking about the metrics that we use in children and, and really what should matter in our dialysis population, again, is not just about the numbers, but um, you know, what really improves outcomes for our pediatric patients. And so uh, really nice talk on um, cardiovascular risk factors and how this is not as simple as blood pressure or fluid or cardiac stunning. She did some great information about calcium levels in our pediatric patients that we tend to be much more worried about high levels of calcium and, and deposits, but really uh, low calcium is not good for the uh, uh, cardiovascular health as well. And, and really finding that balance between um, uh, electrolytes and, and uh, hypertension and uh, uh, fluids, but also uh, a, a sort of new um, idea of being more cognizant of uh, EKGs in our patients and looking at long QT um, in, in our patients and, and how that affects cardiovascular um, health. And then uh, I was the final speaker of the session talking about the evolving role and challenges of the pediatric um, hemodialysis medical director. And it's a fairly big topic, um, but uh, hopefully it uh, began to stimulate some, some thoughts and some brainstorming and uh, really putting out there that, that we need to come together as our pediatric dialysis community, pediatric nephrology community to make sure that we are um, speaking up for our children and that we are really working um, to find um, the best metrics to, t uh, to take the best care of our children and that we're working um, together to make sure that we're all supported and disseminating information uh, that, that helps each other out in our roles. This um, day was another uh, wonderful day of uh, interesting sessions. Uh, the feedback that I've received about the meeting so far this year has been extremely positive, the sessions yesterday and the sessions today. One thing that we also did today was we had our uh, annual business meeting, and we got to hear about all of the exciting work 
uh, that our committees are doing on behalf of pediatric nephrologists and pediatric nephrology patients and the uh, tremendous energy that's put into that. And we also uh, emphasize to the membership how important it is for people to volunteer and participate and it's as simple as joining a committee in order to get involved in ASPN. I'd like to conclude uh, by thanking first uh, David Rosansky, who was the program chair in 2017 and has put he, under his leadership uh, this outstanding program was put together. And finally, I'd like to thank the two co-chairs of our communications committee, Ibrahim Shatad and Michelle Rowe, who organized these podcasts. This is the first year we've ever had podcasts, and I'm very excited to see these uh, going forward as well.